Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly. Which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hey, what's up? It's Nolan from Past Gas by Donut Media. We are an automotive history show. This week, we're talking the life story of Gilles Villeneuve, Canada's most important Formula One driver, this guy is a national hero up there and truly one of the greats taken from us too soon. He started out racing snowmobiles when he was a teenager. He invented one of the most important snowmobile innovations ever, which is crazy for a Formula One driver to do, and eventually became just one of the most legendary drivers of the 1970s. This guy raced for such a short time, but had such a large impact, and it was super cool to talk about a Quebecois racing legend. That's Past Gas by Dona Media, available anywhere you get your podcasts. Subscribe today. Number one automotive podcast, Past Gas. Big announcement. Donut is going on tour. The entire Donut crew is going on a five-city world tour across the southwestern United States. Tickets just went on sale. Uh, We're really excited. This is a live theater show. We've never done anything like this, and we're super stoked to get in front of you guys and do what we do in a live setting. So here we go, guys. Friday, June 10th, we're going to be in El Cajon, California. Saturday, June 11th, Riverside, California. Sunday, June 12th, Mesa, Arizona. Wednesday, June 15th, San Antonio, Texas. And Thursday, June 16th, Houston, Texas. Uh, This is sort of a test tour for us. If you don't live near any of those cities, tell your friends who do live near those cities to get tickets. So this is a big success, and uh, we get to do more shows, and then we will come out to your town during a later tour. The idea for this is we're going to do this one and then do a much, much bigger uh, tour later on in the year. So again, we're really, really excited. There's like VIP tickets available. There's a bunch of different tiers at different price points. Uh, We're going to have exclusive merch, audience participation, science stuff, history stuff. You know we're going to do bits. We're going to sleep on a bus. Pretty excited about that. So uh, yeah, we're really, really really looking forward to it and really, really looking forward to uh, seeing you guys in person. So go to DonutMediaLive.com. Tickets go on sale April 8th. Don't miss out. We'll be really embarrassed if nobody buys tickets. On a cold January night at 30 Rockefeller Center in New York City, Jeff Gordon was backstage at the famous Studio 8H. 
preparing to give his opening monologue. You must have been wondering how a kid from small town Vallejo, California, whose childhood nights were spent pulling fast turns on an old dirt track, would end up hosting Saturday Night Live. This was an achievement attained primarily by those who had reached the summit of American pop culture, famous actors, musicians, and mega celebrities. But there's a very obvious answer to how Jeff Gordon ended up in New York that night, performing sketch comedy for millions of people. He was a good driver, insanely good, in fact. And when he burst onto the scene as a 20-year-old, the NASCAR world took notice. Then, when he became the youngest person to ever win a NASCAR championship at 24, the rest of the world took notice too. In less than a decade, Gordon's aggressive driving style and knack for publicity helped transform NASCAR. It went from being a niche sport and national punchline for being loved by only rednecks and gearheads into a sport so popular that its biggest star had been invited to host the top comedy show in America's most cosmopolitan city. Here he was, sharing a stage with comedy stars Tina Fey, Amy Poehler, and Tracy Morgan. To this day, he's the first and only race car driver to ever host the show. Today on Pass Gas, how did a sensitive boy who grew up 20 miles from San Francisco take over a rugged sport which sprung from the illicit moonshine running business in the South? What made Jeff Gordon so good at such a young age? How would Jeff navigate the fever of fame? Did his popularity in the media ultimately overshadow his abilities as a race car driver? What the heck is a rainbow warrior? Live from Donut Studios in Inglewood, California, it's Past Gas. Um, if you guys, hey guys, what's up? <laughs> what's up? If you guys were on SNL, what would your like during the intro? What would your thing be? Like some people like cheers a drink. Mm-hmm. Like some people are getting like a hot dog. Mm-hmm. Joe Weber. Joe Weber. What's Joe doing? I'd be picking up pennies in the subway. <laughs> yeah, that's solid. Nolan Sykes. I think something food related. I'm eating maybe a hot dog, maybe a falafel, maybe some falafel. Oh, that's cool. Or a little a spin sli- on the you're, classic. You're folding a slice yeah. of pizza, but you're folding it the wrong way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you take a bite out of the middle. Yeah. <laughs> um, I would want to be standing at a bar and I'm wearing pleated khakis. Okay. And I wet my pants. <laughs> <laughs> that's perfect. That's does it great. pan down or does it just <laughs> No, I think it's just like a, it's just like a lockdown shot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and you just see it. And it's it's longer than everyone else's and it wait, it's <laughs> yeah. like 45 seconds long. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the music kind of just slowly goes down the whole time as it's happening. Uh, yeah. And I'm giving a look just like, I don't care. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You still look really cool, but it, yeah. yeah. I'm like, I don't care, dude. Yeah. And you just hear Daryl Hammond like, uh. <laughs> <laughs> and then I sneeze and then it cuts away. That's, yeah. that's really cool. Yeah. I don't remember this episode of SNL with him hosting. I should probably watch it after this. Great cast. I bet it's relatively funny. We got to get Daniel Rick Rick on there. Yeah, Danny Rick's a pretty affable guy. Daniel Ricardo would kill. She just needs to win a little bit. Our producer, Gavin, just said that Avril Lavigne was the musical guest. And it was 03, so I probably would have been watching this one. It's a damn cold. 
cold night. And then I'm down just right. That's Avril? Yeah. Tell me what you tell me what to do. That was her second biggest hit, probably. My girlfriend in high school looked like Avril Lavigne, and I loved it. Ooh, nice. All right. Welcome back to Past Gas, everybody. I am your host, Nolan Sykes, joined as always by my two co hosts. We got Joe Weber. Hey, Nolan. Thanks for having me. <laughs> and That's great, Joe. James Pumphrey. Yo, what's the word, you little birdie bird? Don't be a turd. <laughs> Immaculate rhyme. Thank you, James. Uh, yeah, this week we are talking about the one and only Jeff Gordon, the Rainbow Warrior himself, Mr. 24, driving that beautiful DuPont car back in the 90s. This is. Did he change his number to 24 after he had won... When he was 24? Is that where that comes from? I don't know. We're, we'll see. No, he, ca- he called it like... Uh, like Babe Ruth. <laughs> the great Bambino. That'd be sick. Yeah, yeah that'd be really awesome. Uh, I'm not sure, Joe. We'll have to find out in this episode. How about that? Deal? How about that? How about that? How about that? Find out in episode. Catch How about that? Pod. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Okay, let's get into it. <laughs> Jeff Gordon was born August 4th, 1971 in Vallejo, California. That's where uh, Six Flags is at, up there. At the age of four, he got a BMX bike as a gift, and instantly it became his obsession. His stepfather, who worked in auto parts and was a huge racing fan, noticed and got an idea. If young Jeff Gordon liked racing on two wheels, then maybe he'd love racing on four wheels twice as much. He bought (laughs) little Jeff... That's not how that works. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. Uh, his stepdad bought little Jeff a quarter midget race car. And as it turned out, his hunch was right. Gordon was a five-year-old hooked on speed. That, no, Whoa, that's, that's not good. Don't give five-year-old speed. It was clear early on that Jeff had a gift. And by the time a five-year-old named Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's nice. He's probably Jeffrey back then. Oh, and by probably. the way, his middle name is Michael. Jeffrey Michael Gordon. Oh, good. Thank you, Joe. Jeffy, Jeffy boy. By the time Jeffy Boy turned nine, he was regularly beating 17 and 18-year-olds in racing events. How humiliating and is his that? Stepdad, his stepdad was like, a cha-ching. <laughs> <laughs> Young Jeffy is going to bring me the greenbacks. <laughs> mm, this could be very profitable, <laughs> cha-ching. Wait, sorry, are you talking to yourself? Uh, what? Uh, no. What's yeah, I, I just heard you say again? cha-ching. Spaghetti again? <laughs> I like spaghetti. <laughs> at 14, uh, Jeff was so good at racing that he struggled to find enough challenging competition in his area. So his family made the difficult decision to leave California and move to Indiana, a place with a lot more tracks where he could legally race sprint cars with his parents' approval. Well, you think you're going to like, you like uh, racing 18 year olds? You're going to love racing 36 year olds. (laughs) While most parents were signing field trip permission slips for their children to go to the botanical gardens, Jeff Gordon's parents were signing slips to let him drive 150 miles per hour in a steel cage. On dirt. On dirt. The hope was that in Indiana, Jeff would eventually get good enough to go full time in racing and that opportunities would present themselves. They could have never predicted that his talent and skill level would rise faster than a qualifying lap at Daytona. <laughs> That's a little racing humor for you. Jeff would practice late into the night, oftentimes sleeping in a truck and working on his own car to save money. 
his dedication paid off as he became the youngest person ever admitted to the United States Auto Club, where he won three sprint car track championships before he was old enough to get his driver's license. Wait, so he was like 15 when he's sleeping in his own truck? His dad was probably there guarding him. It's probably a bed truck, too. I at least hope he had a big dog. Or a very tenacious cat. One of those big ones that like have the dots on them. Yeah. <laughs> we talking cats. about a Garfield? Yeah, Garfield. A Garfield. <laughs> yeah, I hope Jeff had a Garfield. <laughs> <laughs> Famously aggressive cat Garfield. <laughs> <laughs> After a series of record-breaking championships and being named the 1989 USAC Midget Rookie of the Year, Gordon's reputation as a racing wonder kid was growing. Naturally, the scouts came calling, but Gordon had a different idea. He decided it was time to take school more seriously. Stock car racing school, that is. (laughs) Jeff was accepted to the revered Buck Baker Driving School in North Carolina. When ESPN got word of this racing savant attending the famous school, they sent a documentary team to follow him around. This was all laying the groundwork for a level of media attention never before seen in American motorsports. After graduating driving high school, uh, <laughs> Jeff, or driving college maybe, he joined the NASCAR Bush League in 1992, and wouldn't you know it, he won. Captured a rookie record 11 pole, 11 pole positions and won Rookie of the Year at the age of 21 years old while driving a Ford car for owner Bill Davis, who also drew Garfield. <laughs> <laughs> so now, from now on, He never pays for a Garfield ever again. He gets them for free. He never pays for a Garfield ever again. Also, Bill Davis, uh, little known fact, is Jonathan Davis from Corn's dad. (laughs) (laughs) What's crazy, actually, is I guess in the early 90s, uh, Jeff was looking at getting into IndyCar. He couldn't because not enough money. But uh, it turns out Jackie Stewart offered Gordon a, a test over in Europe to try out some open wheelers. Um, I don't know if that's Formula One or not, but that's pretty cool that Jackie Stewart was recognizing the talent so early on. And he went over there and he was like, yeah, sorry, they eat snails over there. <laughs> Yuck. <laughs> no. And so he came back, he's like, I like pizza. My cat loves lasagna. Winston Cup Hall of Fame owner Rick Hendrick loved Gordon's aggressive style, and after seeing him masterfully handle a broken car that he thought for sure would crash... He decided to poach him from the Bush League. After Hendricks signed him to his elite NASCAR circle, he declared, Gordon's one of the best prospects I've ever seen. I felt like this was my chance to get my Michael Jordan. Yee-haw! (laughs) Dance, Farmer! (laughs) End quote. (laughs) The circuit's drivers, however, did not share in Rick Hendrick's enthusiasm. To them, Gordon was a dangerous young risk taker with only two years of stock driving experience who was nothing more than media hype. On top of that, he was from crunchy, goofy, hippie California and just didn't mesh well with the good old boy culture of NASCAR. We still see this today. Everybody hates the, the Kyle Busch. In driver's circles, he was referred to as that Gordon kid, which was usually followed up with a sarcastic jerking off motion. (laughs) 
Gordon didn't mind being different. He switched from Ford to Chevy and even decided to paint his car a bright rainbow color, which in the testosterone-driven traditional world of NASCAR racing was met with snickers and raised eyebrows. I highly doubt that he had anything to do with the color of his car. Why is reading jerking off motion way funnier than actually seeing it? It just is. So Bush League, real quick. I always assume I I never put two and two together on this one because if if the uh, I think that's where it comes from. That's where it comes from. Yeah, because Cup Series is the top, and then Bush League is kind of like the the feeder, kind of like the the yeah. the JV, if you will. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So there you it's go. That's Bush, Bush League, League stuff. It's pretty Bush League. Yeah. Pretty. Uh, I thought it was like George Bush. <laughs> I thought it came from like a beer league, like baseball beer league. Oh, that makes you know? a lot of sense. That's Bush League, dude. Just first race in the Winston Cup Series just so happened to be the last race in the career of legendary seven-time champion Richard the King Petty. In hindsight, it feels like a hefty offering of symbolism from the cosmos. Gordon defied low expectations and finished fifth overall in NASCAR's most important event, the Daytona 500. His top five finish made even the most skeptical of fans wonder if, hmm... Maybe this kid is good after all. Maybe he's actually mm-hmm. pretty good. That does sound like a typical NASCAR fan. Ooh, maybe <laughs> this California kid is pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go, Brandon. <laughs> we'll be right back with more of this story. But first, a word from our sponsors. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. As it turned out, excellence would have to wait as Jeff struggled his way through the rest of the 93 Winston Cup season. He won Rookie of the Year and is still the only driver to win it for both the Bush and Winston Cup series. But he fell to 14th overall in points and destroyed a few cars along the way. His reputation as an out-of-control and reckless driver was gaining a little bit of merit. One driver described him as, quote, hitting everything but the pace car. But if Tom Cruise action movies had taught us anything, it's that hyperconfidence combined with blind aggression Always works out in the end. I've never seen Days of Thunder. Great movie. Is it, it? How does it rank in the list of racing movies? Would you say? Number one. R- no. For sure. 
Really? Yeah. Imagine because Top Gun, he drives right? a Chevy Lumina, and that's you your know, favorite car. You know to- Top Gun. It's because it's got Ed yeah. Harris. Same movie. Top Gun, but with cars. Yeah. Is there a volleyball scene? Uh, no. There's a wheelchair race. <laughs> that's analogous. Uh huh. It's really, it's really good movie. Um, when I was a kid, my dad and I went to Best Buy and bought uh, surround sound. Oh, and installed nice. it one Sunday. Nice. I mean, yeah. and then we also bought because we got a DVD player, and we Ooh. also bought Top Gun and Days of Thunder, and watched them both. And it was one of the best days of my life. That's an amazing. Was your dad a huge day. Tom Cruise fan? No, he just liked surround sound. <laughs> <laughs> no, he had a he just had an affinity for good sound design. That's yeah. an awesome day, dude. Such a good day. Meanwhile, back in 1993, the media didn't care that Jeff only finished 14th. They were smitten with him. Heading into the 94 season, Gordon was heralded as the next big thing and the future of racing. The pressure was turned up, but Jeff, <laughs> he was ready for it. He won the first race of the season, an exhibition known as the Bush Clash, barely beating NASCAR's megastar and 93 champion Dale Earnhardt Sr., Earnhardt, who owned one of the sport's most fitting nicknames, the Intimidator, couldn't hide his displeasure of losing to a 22-year-old, sarcastically calling him Boy Wonder. The Cosmos would hit us again with a crumb of foreshadowing of what was soon to be a classic rivalry. I mean, I'm like, I'm in my mid-30s, close to my late 30s. If some 22-year-old showed up and was like way better than me, I'd be like, that makes sense. About time. (laughs) Born in 51, so he was 42 at this time. I was born in 1951, yes. After showing massive improvement throughout the season and with 41 races under his belt, Gordon was still desperate for his first NASCAR victory. So with 25 miles left in the Coca-Cola 600, he took what at the time was seen as a massive gamble. During the final pit stop, he decided to only change two of his tires instead of all four, spending only eight seconds in the pit. This positioned him into the lead and helped him beat out the favorite of the race, Rusty Wallace, by exactly eight seconds. Rusty Wallace said afterwards, quote, I never thought the two tires thing would work. It was a chancy move. Very savvy. Gordon's aggressive nature had finally gotten him his first victory, as well as a teaspoon of respect from a racing superstar. After another major victory at the Brickyard 400 in Indianapolis, Gordon would be inconsistent for the rest of the 94 season. He watched on with envy as Dale Earnhardt Sr. won his second championship in a row and seventh of his career, tying him with Richard Petty for the most winningest of all time. While Gordon knew risk-taking was one of his ingredients for success, He still hadn't refined it. He wouldn't win another race that season, but managed to finish in the top 10 in points. He tore through a lot of expensive cars, but it was necessary for his growth. He could see more clearly now what it took to win at this level. He was more confident than ever heading into the 1995 season. 1995 started out rough for Jeff Gordon, who had a miserable first race at Daytona. This left racing fans to wonder if maybe he was still too young to truly compete. But old Jeffy was just a warming and up a baby. Ooh. 
He came in first place in three of his next six races and finished the season with seven total wins. Going into the final race, he found himself neck and neck in the standings with Dale Earnhardt Sr., who was searching for his third straight championship and eighth overall. This feat would have given him the most all-time and solidified his spot as the sport's greatest driver. Earnhardt fans had scoffed at the idea of a young California kid keeping Earnhardt from earning his glory. Conversely, the growing Gordon fan base reveled in the prospect of their new favorite driver keeping the racing legend from earning his ultimate glory. It was sports drama at its most titillating. The Intimidator had no qualms doing his part to throw some high-octane fuel on the fire. This is exactly what happened last season in F1 with Max and Mm -hmm. Lewis. But it's like, it's that's if like Lando had won or like a young driver. He's not a, he's not a rookie though. He's been in it for a couple of seasons already. Yeah. But Max has been in it for a minute. It's not a perfect analogy. <laughs> no, I just want to put it, it I just want to put it in context for the F1 fans who are like, what's a NASCAR? Yeah. I apologize for nitpicking your <laughs> analogy. <laughs> Thank you. Once it became obvious the season would come down to the two of them, Earnhardt began taking jabs at Gordon's age to the media. In one quote, he said, if the boy won the championship, he'd have to toast his crew with milk because he probably ain't old enough to drink. (laughs) That's so good. Earnhardt even implied that maybe Gordon was a homosexual to really rile up his more conservative fan base. Uh, So the story with that is that Gordon, uh, he had been dating Miss Winston of the Winston Dynasty? Uh, <laughs> no, it was a, her, her. She was a model named uh, Brooke Seeley. Uh, you know, she was her. Her job was to give out trophies uh, mm-hmm. on Victory Lane, but uh, Jeff and and Brooke decided to keep it kind of like on the on the DL. And uh, mm-hmm. when he heard about it, he quipped that uh, he said, uh, "Some of us were beginning to wonder if you like girls." Mm. Classic. Uh, the Intimidator was putting his nickname to work. It wouldn't be until years later that Gordon admitted that he had been hurt by all that stuff. Despite being his current rival, Gordon was a huge fan of Dale Earnhardt and had admired him since he was a child. However, what a loser. What a baby. <laughs> <laughs> However, in the moment, Earnhardt's words fueled him and aided in his motivation to shock the world. I just imagine like a training montage and he's like real sweaty and just like squeezing milk out of a bottle. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, the final race of the season was the incredibly challenging and it super excitingly named MBNA 500 at Dover, (laughs) Delaware with the championship on the line. Gordon took off and never looked back. He drove with a healthy combo of anger and control. (laughs) I hope people say that about me. He dominated from the beginning, holding the lead for 400 miles of the 500-mile race. In only his third season, he became the youngest driver ever to win a NASCAR championship while preventing racing's biggest star, Dale Earnhardt, from winning that coveted eighth title. At the awards banquet while receiving the championship trophy, Gordon toasted with a glass of milk (laughs) in response to Earnhardt, a move that even the Intimidator himself appreciated. At the start of 1996, Jeff Gordon was no longer the next big thing in racing. Like Gretzky in hockey and Jordan in basketball, he had become the cool young phenom taking over the sport. Thrust into a tornado of media attention, commercial endorsements, and celebrity elbow rubbing, 
Gordon was bringing in a younger generation of fans, expanding NASCAR's popularity for the first time in decades. But not everyone was happy about it. The swaths of working-class fans of Dale Earnhardt Sr. felt like Gordon and his media savvy was bad for the sport. But the truth is, Earnhardt's fans saw the writing on the wall. Deep down, they knew a massive transition was in place. And if the aging Dale Earnhardt was to ever get that eighth championship, he would have to go through that Gordon kid. Doesn't rubbing elbows sound like such a bad thing? Like, I hate when I'm on a plane and I rub elbows with someone. I actively avoid it. It's because that's a gross person on a plane and not a beautiful, nice, clean celebrity. (laughs) That's true. They are very clean. (laughs) Yeah, if there's anything I have to say about celebrities is that they're well known for their uh, traditional bathing habits uh, and hygiene advice that always makes sense. Why do you say that with a smirk on your face? Well, what, wasn't Dak Shepard like, yeah, we don't bathe our kids. And like, there's been a lot of celebrities in the news lately. I feel I've been like, yeah, I actually smell like. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> huh. COVID has uh, affected everybody differently. Uh, apparently, uh, Matthew McConaughey doesn't use deodorant. Oh, yeah, that tracks. Yeah, but he probably yeah. smells good anyway. I would smell it. I bet he smells like like the be- like beautiful sun sweat. Yeah, I bet his musk is like really intoxicating. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Despite hitting the fast lane to fame, Gordon never lost focus. In the 1996 season, he won and won and won a lot. He exceeded his seven victory 1995 season, winning 10 races, five more than anyone else. However, he fell to second place in the championship and lost to his own teammate, Terry Labonte. He didn't win at all, but it was clear to everyone that Jeff was here to stay. Do you think he refers to himself as Jeff? Do you think he's one of those guys? I think he calls himself Little Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> Little Jeff wants some, wants some milk or he's going to be angry. Little Jeff wants sushi for dinner. 17 victories in the last two seasons was impressive as hell, but Gordon's hunger to win was insatiable. He noticed that he had a poor start to all of his first four NASCAR seasons, and he planned to rectify that. So Gordon set his sights on winning the first race of the 1997 season at NASCAR's biggest event, the Daytona 500. I am Iron Man. But he wasn't the only one. His rival, Dale Earnhardt Sr., who had never won the 500, had been dominating and intimidating all day before wrecking his car with only 12 laps to go. One man's loss is another's opportunity, and Gordon took advantage of the lucky break, becoming the youngest person to win the Daytona 500 at only 25 years old. Breaking NASCAR records was becoming a regular occurrence for Gordon, while Earnhardt fans, of course, were convinced that if he hadn't wrecked, the Intimidator would have certainly won. Meanwhile, the media kept calling. He was a regular on the talk show circuits. You didn't need to be a NASCAR fan to know the name Jeff Gordon. And as a result, NASCAR highlights were no longer just relegated to the end of Sports Center or Talk Sports Radio. Television ratings were sky high and the speedways were packed. The crowds were no longer just the typical beer and shot car racing fans. A new breed of fans started showing up to the events. Ones 
that marketing companies like to call yuppies. NASCAR had gone mainstream. Now, you would think all of this newfound fame would go to Gordon's head and affect his racing. Nope. You're dead wrong. Right after winning the Daytona 500, he went on the late show with David Letterman only to turn around and win in Rockingham that weekend. Damn. Gordon won in dramatic fashion all season long, building a reputation as a great end of the race driver, which made him a must-watch every weekend. Sorry, I guess you could say winning races was his stupid human trick. <laughs> nice, Tad. Oh, yeah, that's, that's cool. cool. Yeah. It's a Letterman joke. Yep. Because that's a segment on David on Letterman. Letterman. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get back to more past gas, but right now, a word from our sponsors. Dale Earnhardt was having the worst season of his career. After a nasty wreck in 1996, the Intimidator was experiencing some unfortunate health issues, and in 1997, he finished the season without a single victory for the first time in almost 20 years on the circuit. I, we made a video about Dale Earnhardt that I really like, and uh, we talk about this quite a bit. He would, like, pass out. Oh, jeez. Yeah. So subsequently, Jeff Gordon racked up 10 wins on his way to a second Winston Cup title. The salty rivalry was over. There's no more question as to who is the best stock car driver in the world currently. It was the boy wonder from California who drove the silly rainbow-colored DuPont car. But that rainbow-colored car's fame grew along with Jeff Gordon's. It was known as the Rainbow Warrior, and it was on T-shirts, posters, backpacks, cereal boxes, trapper keepers. From New York City to Edge Hill, the smallest town in Georgia, everybody knew of and had an opinion about Jeff Gordon, and whether you thought he was the greatest thing to ever happen to racing or he was a prima donna that was bad for the sport, you couldn't deny the obvious. His talent, skill, and motivation had made him a living legend. After his championship the previous year, after back-to-back 10-win seasons, the world was now used to expecting greatness. But nobody could have predicted what Gordon would accomplish in the following 1998 season. Fans of sports always remember the truly incredible seasons. They sit in their watering holes talking about where they were when Jordan won his sixth ring or Bonds hit his 73rd home run. They use words like magical or surreal to describe what they've witnessed. Gordon had already become the greatest young driver in NASCAR history, and if you just paid attention to his regular appearances on talk shows like Letterman, you could convince yourself that he was just a celebrity now, caught in the corporate machine, coasting on a cool $20 million a year. But you'd be wrong, because behind the scenes, Jeff Gordon was gearing up to chase what every legendary athlete needs to solidify their legacy, the where-were-you-when moment. Gordon and his Hall of Fame crew chief, Ray Everham, had reached a new level of synergy. Their communication had been finely tuned, and their instincts as a team were sharp as an obsidian knife. That's sharp. Yeah, that's, that's pretty sharp. Like micron, one micron thick sharp. Dang. Cut your cells kind of your skin yeah, cells you cut your life into sharp. pieces with that thing yeah mm-hmm. only if it's your, your last, last resort, resort though yeah gordon was a master driver but he couldn't do it alone he had a great team and everham was a critical part to the, all the success however tensions had been rising between the two amid the pressure to win they knew in order for them to win back to back they needed each other more than ever the 1998 season belonged to jeff gordon 
He won a lot and won big-time races. Rockingham, Bristol, the Coca-Cola 600, the Southern 500 all became another notch on his belt. He amassed win after win, at one point winning four races in a row, which had only been done once 30 years ago. He was winning races regularly by 20 car lengths or more. He claims often mid-race he'd be leading by so much he'd have to tell himself to focus so he wouldn't start thinking about where he was going to celebrate victory that night. (laughs) I'm going to go to Chick-fil-A and then I'm going to go to the Double Tree. (laughs) Open up that mini bar. Even when he wasn't winning, he was almost winning. He finished in second place five times and third three times. While his fans, the Rainbow Warriors, were in a perpetual state of euphoria, his haters refused to believe it could be true. This level of winning was so unprecedented, they assumed he must be cheating. NASCAR gave in to their paranoia and performed a full investigation, only to find nothing. Gordon wasn't cheating. This rare domination was an organic result of skill, talent, focus, with a sprinkle of luck thrown in. By the end of 1998, he had delivered a record-tying 13 wins, a feat only achieved one time in history by the GOAT, Richard Petty. I guess you could say that driving was his stupid human uh, (laughs) skill. (laughs) His stupid human trick. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder which of those wins that season he'd put on his top 10 favorite wins of that season. Because they're top 10. Um, Gordon had won two consecutive championships, three in five years. He would have had won four consecutive if not for an untimely wreck in 96. He'd won 47 races in his first five years. Only 16 drivers had 47 wins in their entire career. Damn. He had started off as a rookie outsider, became the next big thing, and then the sport's biggest star. And in 1998, he changed the conversation yet again. Because now in bars across America, people would talk about where they were in 1998 when Gordon won 13 races. During his SNL monologue, Gordon interacted with two actors in the audience who were playing NPR-loving Manhattanites who had been converted to NASCAR fans because of him. Gordon warned them that their elitism wouldn't be welcomed at the racetrack. He would know. After all, it took him becoming the... After all, it took him becoming the greatest young driver in history to finally be accepted by the fans. After his first six years in NASCAR, Jeff Gordon is the undisputed best stock car driver on the planet. However, he was still very young, and as a driver ages, racing careers can become long and arduous. Life was already challenging enough without the perils of living under the public's microscope. What he's accomplished so far is unprecedented, But what Gordon doesn't realize yet is that bigger tests were still to come. And that's next week on Past Gas as we give you part two of Jeff Gordon's story. Let me tell you, you don't want to miss it. He seems cool, man. Don't want to close my ears. You don't want to miss him because I'm missing him. And you don't want to miss part two. (laughs) Gonna talk about Jeff. And maybe I was done racing and I miss you, baby. And I don't want to miss a thing. I guess you could say singing is James's stupid <laughs> human trick. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So that was part one, part two coming up. Uh, very excited for that. But right now, it's time for some listener mail. James? Listener mail. Hey, guys. I'm a big fan of Donut Media. I had an idea for an episode of Past Gas. 
In the late 60s, International Harvester started making pickup trucks and SUVs. Now, you guys have mentioned the Crew Cab International Truck in an episode of Pass Gas. And I think it would be cool if International Harvester got its own episode. <laughs> About this underrated, forgotten, and downright underappreciated company that stood out from the rest. International Harvester! Thanks, Blake. Yes, definitely. That'd be awesome. I would love to hear about Interhardnister International. Intermashner and Harvester. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, email us your corrections, suggestions, or uh, compliments for my awesome beard at pastgas at donutmedia.com. We'd love to hear from you. You don't have to compliment us. You can write about whatever you want, really. We're, we're mostly just looking for corrections because we speak out of our buttholes a lot of the time. And oh yeah, big time. We don't we don't like to fact check. So please do <laughs> us the work and please send in if we got something wrong, um, uh, we will give you a shout out. Yeah, for sure. Uh so shout out that's to if- shut the f- up and mind your own business. <laughs> all right, all right. Let's uh we want them to listen to our show. Uh big thanks to our producer this week, Gavin Kinsell, and our writer. James Mastriani. James Mastriani. Big thanks to James Mastriani for writing this one. Follow my boys at James Pomfrey, at Joji Weber, at me, at Nolan J. Sykes. <laughs> um, and we'll see you next week for part two of Jeff Gordon. Uh, Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.